Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio and every U.S. military base in the world, on your electronic device via TuneIn, Progressive Voices, Tom Hartman app, and simulcast as television via Free Speech TV Network on Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems all over the country. On the science revolution this week is the real science of Santa Claus. Would you believe it if I told you? the Santa was on a psychedelic high. Plus, Ron Jackson is here about the carbon project you should know about. Behold the Trump crime family's disrespect of life and humanity in geeky science. And don't miss the good, the bad, and the very, very ugly, plus the fact of the week, letting us know about the end of fish. So just check it out at TomHartman.com. Anyhow, Howard in Los Angeles. Hey, Howard, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I just wanted to follow up right-wing hate radio's theory that there's uh, no such thing as white privilege. Right. And the easy proof to see that there is, is, you know, no white parents have had to have the talk with their children. But every African-American parents did. Yep. You know, the, the talk of when you get pulled over by the police, you here's, have to... Here's what you do not to get you, shot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I'd say, like, for me, the revelation, and I didn't really understand this until I was in at least in my 50s and maybe even my early 60s. The big revelation of white privilege to me, and for me personally, the biggest part mm -hmm. of my own experience of white privilege is that I don't have to think about race. I don't, right. when I'm walking down the street, I don't have to worry that somebody's going to attack me because of my race. When I'm driving, I don't have to worry that the police are going to kill me because of my race. Uh, when I go into a store, mm -hmm. I don't have to worry that I'm going to be followed around because of my race. When I go to a restaurant, I don't have to worry that I'm going to get seated in a crappy part of the restaurant because of my race. I could continue, right? I mean, you know, through all of life's experiences, people of color in this country have to be conscious of race every single day day, probably every single hour of every single day. And I don't. White people don't. And, you know, I can't speak from a black person's perspective or a Hispanic person or Asian person's perspective, but or Native American person's perspective. But the science that I've seen on this indicates that having to be continually on your guard because of your race actually produces what would broadly be considered post-traumatic stress disorder for people. It's a traumatizing experience, and it's a traumatizing experience literally from the time you're a year old or two years old when you start as a child interacting with other people socially. And chronic. Yeah, and if you look at it in that context, you see that white privilege isn't just you know, something that, you know, helps white people get a better education or amass more wealth or get better jobs or things like that, you know, where white privilege is using essentially the racist infrastructure and not, you know, trying to challenge it. But it is an insidious form of continual assault on people who are not white. And white people who don't know this, don't point this out or, or don't understand it are part of that assault. And it just needs to be said. Howard, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. That's a good point. Charles in Miami. Hey, Charles, what's up? Hey, to your last caller, I think, um, I guess in my 20s, yes, I would always think about going out as a black male and dealing with the police, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think after I've had kids, 
I don't know how to say it, but I've had to transfer that. I don't really worry about me as much as the fear now of my kids. And, and that's an everyday thought. Right. You know, I have a son that's in the military. You know, I have other I have other family members in the military as well, and I have kids out here go to college. But you know, I worry constantly. I mean, sometimes the phone will ring nine ten o'clock at night, and I'm just still worried. So, you know, that that's what you deal with as an in a even as an African American in this society. But yeah. I think what I called today was, you know, dealing with Mitch McConnell over the years. I'm just sick. I don't I don't know how to say it, but I'm just really sick and fed up with this man already. We have to take control of the Senate. Yeah. He has he has destroyed our lives as progressives, as Democrats in this country. I don't care what color you are. This man and his and, and his um his agenda and I think what pissed me off with him saying, Okay, well, they don't have to relitigate what the House didn't do as far as bringing witnesses, and this is not the body for this, then what, what's he there for? What's the Senate there for? We want to find the truth. And one of the main questions that we need to ask is, what happened to the call? We don't want, and we want to hear the call. I don't want a transcript. I don't need them to give me anything that's written on paper. I want to hear the call. There's some type of way that we can hear the call as Americans. You can take out, take out all the classified information. But we need to hear the call. Yeah, produce the tape. Well, and in the transcript, I mean, that's that's only an eight-minute transcript of a 21-minute phone call, by the way, Charles. Right. So So, something uh, is missing. We would would get the tone of the call as well, you know, if we would just get the call. We're not asking for it. And, you know, these people just don't care. And one more point that I wanted to make, Mm -hmm. it's not that these Republicans and these racists and these conservatives believe in Trump that he's innocent. Their thing is, Prove it. Go ahead and prove that he did this. And I just think that is so un-American. That is so unfair. And, you know, they don't care anything about the Constitution. They'll throw it up in your face as something that they abide by. Oh, I walk around with a copy of the Constitution in my pocket. That was during the, the Obama administration. But I think all of this is because you had a black man, after Martin Luther King, you finally had a black man become president. And they are willing to turn this country inside. They're willing to to sell this country out just to keep the power. And I just, you know, we just got to be truthful with ourselves. It's not that I'm going to give them the, the the benefit of the doubt and say that they don't know or that they believe. No, they know that that Trump is guilty as hell. But we are dealing with people in this society now that just say prove it. Yeah, though, well, what, what they're really doing, Charles, is they're they're participating uh, with Trump in a massive cover Amen. up of a of a crime, uh, you know, a crime against democracy, and yeah, it is a cover up. Charles, I got to move along, but thank you for the call, uh, Lucas in Gloucester, Mass. Hey, Lucas, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, how are you? Nice to talk to you. Great. Hey, I, a quick question. A few weeks ago, you had mentioned Mitt Romney, and if this the impeachment goes to the Senate, something that he could do, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the wording that he used, but it was like a lottery or something. I'm sorry. No, it's um, a secret, vote, secret ballot. Yeah, the rules of the impeachment in the House of Representatives, they debated what would the rules be under which this impeachment vote happens. And they came up with this rule that says, you know, you've got six hours of debate and you've got each person has a minute and you've got, you know, this, that and the other thing. And those rules require a simple majority vote to change for the House of Representatives. When it gets to the Senate in January, the Senate is going to have to establish a set of rules under which they will operate. And that's what Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer were essentially doing, you know, back-to-back press conferences about, as I recall. Schumer was saying, we want the rules to say that as senators, we can bring forward people to testify. And Mitch McConnell was saying, ain't going to happen. I'm not going to let that happen. You know, we don't want to hear from any witnesses who might know what's going on. Another one of the rules that Schumer has been pushing for is to have a secret ballot. And the reason for that is, you see, it's going to take 20 Republicans to actually remove Trump from office. There are a couple of Democratic senators and, you know, the Democrats and Republicans depending on who they are personally, but by and large, they actually do know each other. They eat together in the Senate dining room. You know, they they may not socialize as much as they did 40 years ago, but 
they know what's going on, each party with the other. Right. And what these Democratic senators are saying is that there are probably 20 votes to impeach and remove from office Donald Trump among the Republicans in the Senate. The problem is none of them are willing to deal with the consequences of a public vote asserting that. And so it will only take 51 votes to alter the rules in the Senate to say that you could have a secret ballot. And that's where I was saying I thought that Mitt Romney probably would be the person who would lead a movement in that direction because he's been outspoken about Donald Trump both in the past and more recently. Right. Uh, in fact, just a few months ago, he gave a very impassioned speech about how D Donald Trump is basically destroying American democracy. So you've got one Republican in the Senate. If we can get two more Two more Republicans in the Senate, because there's 53 Republicans in the Senate right now. If, if we can get two more Republicans in the Senate to go along with a secret ballot, or for that matter, allowing witnesses to testify, then this thing could blow up in Mitch McConnell's face. I'm not real confident that that's going to happen, but, right. but I, would not, I would not count it out. And Mitt Romney wants to be president someday, and he wants to be seen by not just Republicans and not just the Republican base. He wants to be seen by the entire country as a man of integrity who's worthy of being president because he believes that, you know, God, the white horse prophecy, that God has intended a Mormon to save the nation and that that guy is Mitt Romney. Lucas, I got to run. Thanks. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Back with your thoughts and mine on impeachment, on the process, on the people, on everything that's going on here. Our book today is How to Be Less Stupid About Race by Crystal M. Fleming. This is from the introduction, The Origins of Racial Stupidity. It opens with an epigraph from Martin Luther King Jr. It is an aspect of their sense of superiority that the white people of America believe they have so little to learn. From the introduction. Hundreds of years after establishing a nation on colonial genocide and chattel slavery, people are kind of, sort of, maybe possibly waking up to the sad reality that our racial politics are still garbage. But as our society increasingly confronts the social realities of race, we're faced with a barrage of confusing developments. How could the same country that voted twice for an Ivy League-educated black president end up electing an overt racist who can barely string together two coherent sentences? Why do white liberals who can't even confront their Trump-supporting friends and families think that they can lead the resistance? Democrats who don't care about mass deportations or the treatment of Muslims under Obama suddenly care now that a Republican is in charge. While black and brown people are being crushed by systemic white supremacy, the rapper Common thinks we can all get over a race by extending a hand in love. Don Lemon still has a job. Rachel Dolezal exists. Everyone has an opinion about race. But 99% of the population has never studied it. And even many textbooks that talk about race are filled with lies, inaccuracies, and so-called alternative facts. With so much racial ignorance in the world, how can we ever find our way to that glorious mountaintop Martin Luther King Jr. glimpsed right before a white racist killed him? Although race is an inherently divisive topic, the cause of continual controversy, Facebook feuds, and endless debates, there is exactly one thing and one thing only that we can probably all touch and agree on regardless of our racial or ethnic identity, gender, age, political beliefs, or shoe size. And that is that we are surrounded by racial stupidity. From the White House to Waffle House, from the classroom to the internet comments section, from the television to the tiki torch aisle of your local Pier 1, we are surrounded and at a times astounded by the ignorant and dangerous ideas people express about this thing called race. Why are so many people so incredibly confused and misinformed about race? It's the white supremacy, stupid. As I'll demonstrate throughout this book, one of the main consequences of centuries of racism is that we are all systemically exposed to racial stupidity and racist beliefs that warp our understandings of society, history, and ourselves. In other words, living in a racist society socializes us to be stupid about race. Of course, as you well know, some people are more afflicted by racial stupidity than others. We'll get into the nature of those variations a bit later. For now, I want to emphasize just how widespread and ubiquitous racial ignorance really is. Politicians routinely spout racist distortions of reality and lie about the existence and nature of racial oppression. Absurd racial stereotypes pervade our various forms of media. And as noted, textbooks systemically misrepresent racial history in ways that minimize or erase racism altogether. 
And all too often, teachers themselves are undereducated or miseducated about the history and ongoing realities of racial oppression. How to Be Less Stupid About Race explores precisely how and why racial stupidity has become so terribly pervasive and examines the cesspool of silly ideas, half-truths, and ridiculous misperceptions that have thoroughly corrupted the way race and racism are represented in the classroom, pop culture, media, and politics. The key idea that I'll come back to again and again is that living in a racist society exposes us all to absurd and actually harmful ideas that in turn help maintain the racial status quo. Drawing from my own experience as an educator and as someone who continually confronts my own racial ignorance, I'll also share some concrete steps that you, as well as your racist friends, ignorant family members, and clueless co-workers can take to become less stupid about race and better equipped to detect and dismantle racial oppression. While I don't personally believe in post-racial utopias and I don't put a lot of faith in reaching glorious mountaintops, I know for sure that the very first step in challenging racism is having a clear understanding of what it actually is. Not only are we surrounded by stupid ideas about race, we are even surrounded by stupid ideas about how to talk about race. In May 2015, Starbucks launched a doomed campaign called Race Together to encourage baristas and coffee drinkers around the country to have a conversation about race. Although many might have mistaken the campaign for a satirical entry on The Onion, Starbucks announced that its employees had the option of arbitrarily writing the hashtag Race Together on a random customer's cup. Aspiring coffee drinkers minding their own damn business would then be obliged to say something to the barista about race. After a steady stream of criticism and mockery on social media by anti-racists across the color spectrum, yours truly included, the company eventually backpedaled and canceled the initiative. To some, encouraging random people to talk about race sounds like a step in the right direction. But we don't need more profit-driven corporations to take a stand and say that race is a legitimate and important topic of discussion. Rather than thinking about the best practices that might foster a productive discussion about race, the company executives thought best to just sort of tell everyone to figure it out without providing any educational resources, training, or guidelines whatsoever. In a letter to employees, Starbucks chairman Howard Schultz stated that he conceived of the idea, quote, not to point fingers and not because we have answers, but because staying silent is not who we are. How to be less stupid about race by Crystal Fleming. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Mineral Man has a post over at Democratic Underground that is so spot on, it's chilling. Uh, he, it's titled, Beware of Donald Trump's Attempts to Link Mental Illness with Violence. And he, he notes, he, you know, Trump wants to create, quote, mental health treatment centers. Right. Who will Donald Trump think is mentally ill and needs to be involuntarily locked up? Will it be me? Will it be you? Will it be liberals? You know, who's he going who's, who's to put away? Uh, amazing. Amelia in Seattle. Hey, Amelia, you had thoughts on engaging a racist? Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, you know, I have found, I work with children. I'm in the art therapy um, business, and I have found that relating to the individual to the best of my ability, is, has worked every time. You know, when we talk about these people and we say they behave like children, these racists and these sexists, and then I ask myself, how, what can a child really take? You know, what are they really up for? Are they up for judgment or are they up for listening? Are they up for being singled out and isolated or are they up for inclusion? And I have found when I approach racists and sexists as if they are truly children who have a reason for being hurt, and a reason for being hateful, um, I get some pretty good results. I've seen people actually make real turns. I use real-time hmm. examples. I have, an, I have an advantage being a woman of multi-races and um, also from a family of people of a lot of different uh, sexual orientations, so mm -hmm. I can tell personal stories, and I can imagine the pain that people go through, and uh, the relating to these people has been the best thing I've ever chosen to do. Wow. Can you give me an example of a conversation or, or a phrase or a... Yeah, the best example, I, uh, you know, when I, I kind of feel the moment, 
And I notice that a lot of people respond to words like love and God and compassion or some kind of um, common entity we appreciate, like the Dalai Lama. So I'll, I'll put something out there that's a little more neutral, right? And then allow people, to, that kind of opens people up a bit. But the very specific example is a Rasta I met um, when I was living overseas, and he hated gay people, and it's part of his religious beliefs. And I said to him, well, do you believe that God is love? Because he believes in Jah as God. And I said, do you believe in God, that God is love? He said, of course, of course. I said, so what do, what do we do with love when people enter the room? Do we take it from them or do we give it to them? He said, we give it to them. And I said, so when a person who is gay enters the room, do you give them your love or do you take it? And he paused. Mm. And the next time he was interviewed, he refused to, to speak in the way that Rastas do disparagingly about gay people because he had had an awakening about the fact that he was not giving love and being true to his own spiritual beliefs wow. by going along with these hateful thoughts. So I've kind of taken it from there. I, uh, I got a guy to stop harassing me uh, sexually to say to him, hey, you know, what do you think your mother or your God would say right now? So this mm. kind of compassion and bringing the entity and the energy of love forward as a woman of color and, and is really worked for me. And actually some men of color as well would report the same thing in my community. That is great. That is great. Yeah. Amelia, thank you for yeah. sharing your story with us. Thank you, Tom. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. That, 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 that's remarkable stuff. Kirk in Ukiah, California. Hey, Kirk, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hi, thanks for taking my call. The other day, you had a caller that was upset about the way the Democrats were in the Judiciary Committee. And then you made a comment about Nadler, and I don't exactly remember what it was, but it led me to believe that you didn't think he was doing a good job. And I wondered if you could clarify that for me, because I thought Nadler was was trying to be fair, and, and right. I'll take my answer off the air, but uh, yeah. thanks again. Thank you, Kurt. My point about Nadler was that he was not as competent as Adam Schiff was at looking for the words. Adam Schiff came across as a guy who was strong and yet fair, who was absolutely in charge, and nobody was going to run him over. And he took basically no guff from anybody. And when the Republicans kept bringing up procedural things that would call for a vote that would screw everything up, just because they knew that the TV cameras were on them and they were trying to get people to tune away, they didn't want people to pay attention. Nadler, he didn't go along with it. I mean, he fought it in many cases, but I, my personal opinion was that he allowed way too much of that to go on. Now, this is not a knock on Jerry Nadler. He's a very smart man, and he did a really good job of running the Judiciary Committee. I just thought that Adam Schiff did a better job. And if they were looking for somebody to play the role of prosecutor in the Senate, and that's ultimately the role that all these guys are auditioning for, that's going to be the role of the century, to be the guy from the House or the woman from the House who goes to the Senate and presents the articles of impeachment and argues in favor of them. And the other side will probably be Doug Collins, you know, from Georgia, who's uh, been arguing the other side in the House or in the Judiciary Committee. That's the, basically the sum and substance of my comment. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, good afternoon. I, uh, I just felt compelled to call in because there have been a bunch of callers, I've noticed, that are speaking to the futility of seeing the impeachment process through, you know, talking about it's a waste of time and waste of money and so forth. And it cannot be stressed enough to these folks. And, you know, they're largely self-proclaimed progressives or, or at least Democrats. And they're failing to appreciate how this is going to be a line of demarcation in history on several critical changes that are about to come. Number one, obviously, to try and discourage a man and Mr. Trump from running completely rogue again, especially right. if he does accomplish re-election. But more importantly, the future of the Republican Party, there is going to have to be something that comes into existence, either completely anew or rebuilt from old foundations. But this is going to be, you know, where were you when it happened, Grandma? What did you do? Yeah. And it's going to be important to note for the record who did what when. I agree. I agree. Well said, Eric. Thank you very much. You nailed it. Our video for the day for Tom Hartman program, it's available over at TomHartman.com is talking about how 
Donald Trump, the Donald Trump presidency has been fundamentally destructive, not just to the United States, not just to our political norms, not just to our body politic, not just to the institutions of the presidency and our governance in general. His disrespect of judges, his disrespect of Congress, his, his pushing the boundaries of what you know, an Article II office can do. But it's also destructive around the world because of the things that he's not doing, that aren't getting attended to. We've got part, major parts of the world that are spiraling into chaos that could, any, several of them could trigger World War III. And instead, he's sitting there live tweeting Fox News, literally every morning and every evening. Check it out. It's available over at TomHartman.com. Welcome back. We're talking impeachment, you know, among other things. And we've also, I would say today, wandered into a discussion about race because, you know, race is at the core of Trump's presidency. And so, you know, we're talking that issue, too, today. Lee in Akakeek, Maryland. Am I saying that right, Lee? Yes, right. Akakeek is correct. Tom, first of all, thank you for everything you've done. And, you know, you're a great host. I mean, I love listening to your show. Thank you, Lee. Um, as a, I'm a 55-year-old African-American and um couple of things. Uh, I, when you mentioned about we should suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome, I always talk to my friends and say this should, this should definitely be some sort of mental health services available to the African-Americans in America because of uh, what we go through. I mean, I had that talk with my mom when I first got my license at 16, and I told her at the time, I thought she was, you know, that those were back in those days, and that, you know, times were different. And I sixteen I had a car and my first time driving my car and I got pulled over and it was like a regular occurrence. And now as a, even as a fifty five year old man, I still feel some sort of um stress between, you know, you know, driving the car, what can happen now, things are being actually uh recorded when and things have always been happening to African Americans, but never really got the publicity and attention that is that is getting now because of, you know, when has cameras and Right. It's being, you know, across across the world. Also, too, you know, one thing, my, I take my daughter to school up in uh, upstate New York and up in Pennsylvania. Man, and this, I go past one of the trashiest trailer parks in the world, and it's a huge sign that says, Trump, make America great again. And I just corner myself. I say, well, I mean, how can, you know, what the heck is going on in America when you were probably some of the poorest of the poor, but you're going to idolize somebody who could care less about you. I just don't understand, Tom. Yeah. Well, Franklin Roosevelt said that poverty is the stuff that dictatorship is made of. And it's absolutely the case. And I think that when we finally have a conversation about reparations, PTSD therapy or help or, you know, as you said, mental health services, well, you know, Bernie's been arguing for years that mental health services should be part of, you know, a national health care system. It should be free to everyone, but certainly to people who have experienced what's now, you know, multi-generational abuse at the hands of a system. And, you know, 400 years of multi-generational abuse and violence, absolute violence. So, yeah, I'm with you, Lee. Lee, thanks a lot for the call. I, I, yeah, this is... <sighs> It's just, it's just crazy that as a nation, we can't provide health care, we can't provide mental health services. It's crazy that as a nation, we tolerate racist institutions or racism within our institutions. It's crazy that as a, as a country, we are not more awake to all this. And, and again, I think that between the Obama presidency and all the faux outrage over at Fox News about absolutely everything our first black president did, that... You know, maybe it, it, it's getting out there, I guess, better. But anyway, we'll continue the conversation right here at the Tom Hartman Program. Your media support group for We the People. Yeah, all of us. It's the place where smart people get the news. Stick around. We'll be right back. We used to think new year, new me. Yeah, right. More like new year, new wrinkles. With every passing year, we all look older. But all that has changed now thanks to this magic-in-a-bottle Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's like you turned back the clock instead of ringing in another new year. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. All you have to do is apply this powerful serum to problem areas, and within 10 minutes, voila, a new you. And the best part? 
No surgery or Botox involved. It's all natural. Ring in 2020 knowing Plexiderm is going to give you smooth, younger-looking skin in minutes. And the best part is it goes on clear, so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles in 2019 with Plexiderm. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code HARTMAN, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, half off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code HARTMAN. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code Hartman at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com, code Hartman. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is a Revolution of Values by Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, the subtitle Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. This is from the introduction titled Moral Clarity and the Fog of War. Since the late 1970s in America, political operatives have invested money and energy in framing the cultural concern of conservative white Christians as the moral issues in our public life. This framing was the explicit agenda of many of the organizations that built a religious right, but it has become commonplace across political and religious divides in America's public square. Whether you agree with them or not, conservative white evangelicals serve as the spokespersons for morality on the evening news. This was not always the case. Just half a century ago, the most famous religious leader in America was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In the context of the civil and human rights movement of the 1960s, voting rights, equal protection under the law, economic justice, peace, and the environment were widely recognized as moral issues. Americans from different racial and religious groups certainly did not agree on how to address these issues, but they were consistently addressed as moral issues. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in the 1980s and the 1990s during the heyday of the moral majority movement and the emergence of the Christian Coalition, both of which mobilized conservative white evangelicals to join the Republican Party and hold on to, quote, traditional values. In that context, I learned to understand myself as a Christian at war with the dominant culture. Anxious that our way of life was passing away as the world around us became more diverse, my white evangelical culture taught me to turn to the Bible for solace and direction. As in any battle, our leaders argued about strategy. Should we seek political power to influence legislation or try to influence popular culture? Should we engage more in public life or retreat to spaces where we could avoid the culture's corrupting influence? Should we attempt to use culture, try to change culture, or even build a counterculture? These questions animated a lively debate within white evangelicalism for decades. But amidst the back and forth about strategy and tactics, most people came to agree that Americans were, in fact, at war. James Davison Hunter, a sociologist attuned to the ways elites and institutions were shaping public conversations in the late 20th century, named the phenomena in his 1994 book, Culture Wars. Quote, America is in the midst of a culture war that has had and will continue to have reverberations, not only within public life, but within the lives of ordinary Americans everywhere, end quote. Describing the institutions that had lined up across from one another in American public life, Hunter noted the historic divisions in the nation had shifted. Religious people no longer divided themselves along the denominational lines that had shaped public engagement for most of American history. Increasingly, Hunter observed, Americans saw themselves on one side or the other of a war be between traditional morality and progressive values. This wasn't just about left versus right in politics, though the culture wars inevitably shaped where people stood with regard to partisan issues. The divide between orthodoxy and progressivism was more fundamental, Hunter argued. People on each side increasingly understood their way of seeing the world as fundamentally incompatible with their enemies across the battle line. In the realignment that Hunter described, Americans who looked to the Bible for moral authority were asked to line up against progressive values and policy proposals that sought to expand rights and alleviate poverty. In the name of defending traditional morality in a biblical worldview, I was taught to fight against policy proposals that were advocated by marginalized and vulnerable sisters and brothers who were crying out for justice in public life. On the front lines of the culture war, many who had committed to follow Jesus as Lord realized we had been deployed to fight against the people through whom Jesus promised to be present in Matthew 25. How did white Christian nationalists wrest America's public moral narrative away from the civil rights movement and persuade many people of faith to defend white cultural values in the name of Jesus? This question has haunted me since. As a young man, on my way out of the religious right, I met black Christians who taught me another way of following Jesus in public. 
20 years later, after the election of Donald Trump, I wrote Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion to say what I had learned from the black-led freedom movement about how white identity politics distorted American Christianity's understanding of everything from personal salvation to shared public witness. But as I taught that long history in churches and seminaries across the country, I quickly realized that slaveholder religion's more recent impact on American public life was the pressing concern, not only for Christians struggling to understand public witness, but also for the wider American public that simply could not comprehend how white Christians who claimed to be concerned about morality could stand by a president who was so obviously and egregiously immoral. I wrote this book both for those who share my experience in white Christian institutions and for the many who do not, because the false moral narrative of the tradition I was raised in has impacted everyone caught up in the American story. Revolution of Values is a search for clarity on behalf of a people who lost our way in the midst of the culture wars. Such confusion was not uncommon in the fog of war, veterans remind us. A sensitive and discerning judgment is called for, Karl von Clausewitz writes in his famous treatise on war a skilled intelligence to send out the truth. My methodology has been to send out the truth of what happened to faith in public life by examining the political and economic interests that invested in winning the political allegiance of white evangelicals in the late 20th century. The book, Revolution of Values. We have a new video up, and it's about how the Democrats can never lose an election again. The people who are concerned about immigration, who are supporting Donald Trump's wall, or just are concerned about immigration and how illegal immigration has hurt the union movement in the United States, and it has to some extent, are gettable, as it were. I mean, about a th maybe a third of them are actually just racist. Leave those people to Trump. You're never going to change them. But the people who are just concerned about the economics of it, of you know having a labor market that's not regulated. I think that there's a very simple way that the Democrats can reach out to them, get their support, and peel them off the Republicans, peel them away from, from Donald Trump. And I lay the whole thing out. I think it's a very straightforward process. It's not rocket science, so you can check it out at TomHartman.com. Oh, welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and John in Portland, Oregon. Hey, John, it says you want to disagree with me about what? Yeah, I wanted to disagree with you in regards to the Senate trial and a secret vote. Mm -hmm. I believe that that's going to allow the Republicans, who almost always act in bad faith, let's remember, to say that they that they voted for it or that they however, voted whatever way it's convenient for their next election. Oh, you think that will take the pressure off Susan Collins and, and Cory Cory Gardner and like that? Yeah. Well, that's, that's a good point. That's a good point, John. I'm, I, can't, I can't argue against that. I think it's a trap. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> let, let me ponder that, but I think your, your point is well taken. Hey, Dave in Fort Lauderdale. Hey, Dave. Yes, sir. Yeah, you're on the air, Dave. What's up? I was uh, similar to the last caller. I'm just feeling like uh, at some point the Republican Party's got to rebrand themselves. Mm -hmm. And why not do it by throwing Donald Trump under the bus? And, you know, they're going to lose some of their uh, people in red districts. So basically but, uh, what you're saying, Dave, is you think that the impeachment vote in the House or, or probably more to the point, the impeachment vote in the Senate is the opportunity for the Republican Party to regain their soul? Oh, I don't know. I, I think it's more about their soul will never be, you know, but rebranding themselves as the party, as law and order, even against their own, because they're going, all they're going to have to throw into the bus is that, you know, is Donald Trump mm -hmm. and a few of their, you know, House members that are going to go down anyhow, because only 20 percent of the population identify as Republicans. as It is right. When are they going to start rebranding? They're going to have to rebrand themselves to some point. It's, why not? He's a perfect candidate. He's guilty. And he's a chump. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a strong argument for Republicans to vote against Trump. I, what I'm not seeing is Republicans voting against Trump, and, and it's because they're scared to death. Yeah, I know. And I don't see it either, really. I'm just, I'm just trying to think devious like them. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and I would, I'm kind of hoping it lasts because it's really progressive manna from heaven. But I don't want the country to get hurt over the next year. Who knows what this guy can do? Yeah. We need to get him out. Yeah, that's the downside. But they're going to have to carry this guy 
for the next 10, 20 years, every time something comes up, a soundbite's going to come up on these people of who you support. And it's not going over with Latinos, blacks, or women. Yeah. And it's not going over with a lot of white men also. Well, I'm a 55-year-old white man, so that is true. Yeah, there you go. Dave, thanks a lot for the call. It's nice to hear from you. Greg in Richmond, Kentucky. Hey, Greg, what's on your mind? Hey, thank you, Tom. I'm not Nostradamus, but I believe our republic is lost. We've got, there's not one Senate Republican that's going to vote to convict Trump with or without a secret ballot. I mean, McConnell, his Senate minions, they're going to do whatever it takes to get acquittal of both impeachment charges. And I'd also like to say the rule of law no longer exists in the Republican Party. Republicans have proven themselves over and over again in their allegiance to corporate power and influence over our Constitution. And I think this is going to be a uh, a very big eye-waking event across this country of just how deep Republicans are into corporate needs and desires. So Mm -hmm. I don't know what will come of it, but, you know, I really believe polarization is so bad in this country, there is going to be no reconciliation with this. And, uh, you know, probably the best thing would be to start splitting the country up into different countries and let the Republicans have their land and and the the left have the Democrats their land, rewrite their own constitutions, and that way the the Republicans would be free to deny the residents health care coverage, affordable drug prices, voting rights, civil rights, and they can free market themselves all day long with no checks or balances. Yeah. Problem is the, I mean, you know, when with the Civil War, you had the the South that had turned from a democracy into an oligarchy. There was a small number of plantation owners who basically owned the politics of the South and the economy of the South, and it was very different than the North. And so the regional differences were so clear that the South felt that, you know, in fact, the majority of people in the South wanted to secede from the North and maintain their quote way of life, you know, i.e., slavery. I don't see that in today's United States. You know, I have neighbors who are Trump supporters. I have neighbors who are fervent Trump opposers. We are all, you know, kind of coexisting in this country now. And calls for secession, I wrote an op-ed about this about a month or so ago, that, you know, ultimately that may happen. And it would probably be led by a couple of East Coast states and the three West Coast states you know, forming an alliance and, and breaking away, but I don't see it happening. I think that it's the uh, the equivalent of the conversations that the Catholics used to have, you know, a thousand years ago about how many angels could fit on the head of a pin. It's not going to happen, Greg. I don't see any practical way for us to, well, to break into two countries. I would certainly hope it doesn't happen. Let me state that. But what you just said, you know, the few overlords of the South during the Civil War time period, now it's the whole country with corporate power and influence. Yeah, particularly particularly with Fox News. Yeah, and as long as Fox News is around, that virus is going to continue on and perpetuate. And if Fox goes away, they'll just be replaced by OEN, which is the network. It's, they're entirely on the Internet, but I see them on airplane systems. And they're funded by a bunch of right-wing billionaires, and, or a few, I guess. And they're the ones who went over to Ukraine with Rudy Giuliani you know, two weeks ago to take the testimony of these corrupt prosecutors and say, oh, yeah, Joe Biden's corrupt. And they're going to roll that out if, if Biden gets the nomination. Maybe they'll roll it out even before. But I think that they're hoping that Biden gets the nomination so that they can then roll it out there. I don't think that their oppo research or constructing opposition nonsense is that well-formed or that deep on other candidates. Greg, thanks for the call. I think that was an important point. Tim in Cheney, Chenley Park, Illinois. Hey, Tim, what's up? How you doing, Tom? I don't know really how to deal with your characterization of evangelical Christians. It sounds, sounds so absolutely off-base that I have to make a decision on what your motives are, because I'm the typical white, heavy-metal atheist guy and then I became a evangelical Christian, which then, of course, you characterize as a white man evangelical Christian. And I don't even recognize the people that you just vilify. I mean, just absolutely. I just listened to your commercial for five minutes, and I'm thinking, wow, I think maybe I should just uh, drive my truck off a cliff or something. I mean, oh, you were listening to you were day. listening to uh, one of our book reports during the break. Is that? Yes, it was, yeah. it was just... Yeah, I don't, I don't know which one it was, Tim, but that's me reading somebody else's book. 
We do those on our nonprofit stream. When our commercial stations go to news, our nonprofit stations are listening to me reading somebody's book. We excerpt books. So I can't speak to that, but I'll tell you my personal opinion is that First of all, our churches are more segregated than any of our other institutions in this country. So, yes, there are black evangelicals and black evangelical churches, but the evangelical church, the white evangelical churches in the United States tend to be highly, highly segregated, high, you know, highly focused on white people, number one. And number two, starting with the Ronald Reagan presidency, George W. Bush, his, the vice president's son, was the liaison to the evangelical community. And the Republican Party, for the first time, seriously started reaching out to the evangelical community and formed a political alliance with Jerry Falwell and with a number of other you know, evangelical leaders, but particularly Falwell. He was the leader of that thing. And now it's his son, Jerry Jr., and Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son. And these guys are multimillionaires. They are heavily, they heavily support Donald Trump. They're aggressively supporting his agenda, particularly, in, in my opinion, particularly the racist parts of his agenda. And I'm not having it. I mean, you know, I'm a Christian okay, myself, and, I, and there are good Christian churches I, in this country. But I was just saying that, you know, the letter of Jude was written to churches 1,800, 1,900 years ago. And I would have to say that he is characterizing in his letter, as well as, of course, Peter as well, First and Second Peter, First and Second Third John, they are saying, this is what you should be doing as a Christian, and this is what you should not be doing as a Christian. In the letter of Jude, basically say, look, here are the Christians you should be noticing. Never says kick them out of the church, but he just definitely says you should notice these people. So I mean, there's always going to be kind of non-Christians in the Christian church, but I just the way you're characterizing white yeah. evangelicals like you do white men is, is wrong. Tim, I think, I think that a, maybe we practice a different form of Christianity. I, I look to the Gospels, to the four books that contain Jesus's words. And I'm sure you're familiar, if you're deep into this, you know that the 12 guys who were the followers of Jesus, they formed their own church, essentially, and their church was in opposition to Paul's church. And Paul came along after many of them had died out, but their followers had not died out. And Paul reinvented Christianity. Paul never knew Jesus, never met Jesus. And he was just running around killing bizarre, followers of Jesus. That's a bizarre theology. No, no, this is, this is history, theology. what I'm telling you. And, uh, well, it might be history, and Paul, which, which, by the way, I have in my pocket. Yeah, but, you know, I'm... Paul's I, Christianity, tell me there's no resurrection, there's no salvation in Christ, there's no blood atonement, I mean... Paul's not anti-theological or heretical. But Paul was basically... Not even close. You know, Paul was saying things like, you know, women shouldn't speak in church. And, I, you know, Paul was like laying down rules for his church. I'm just telling you, Tim, I hold to Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew 25. And I think that that's okay. the sum and substance of Christianity. And, Tim, and beyond that, you, you know... You and I you, agree 100... You, you agree 100% with me. I agree with 100% of you. My Christianity comes from the words of Christ... First and foremost, okay, there's, there's, so, so scripture is, is the gospels to a Christian. Yeah. Well, and, I do not, and, and, I do not and maybe, like and, and maybe I'm outside the, the church by saying that, you know, Paul doesn't speak to me or for me. And, you know, okay, I, no, no, I, and I, I think of Paul and sometimes in some ways and, and some of the things he said the same way I think of some of these right wing pastors these days. Tim, I got to move along. I'm sorry. Character. I don't think we're going to, you know, change each other's minds. And so Benji and Marietta Florida. Oh, uh, Benji, let me let me put you on hold here for a minute because we're going to hit a break in just a few minutes. And it wouldn't be fair to put you on and have the music start, uh, which is doing right now. By the way, a headline over at The Guardian that's worth checking out, Nina Lakani writing, the headline itself says the U.S. among top 10 countries for pollution-related deaths. By the way, none of those top 10 countries except the United States are fully developed, you know, industrial democracies. It's just amazing. We are poisoning ourselves for the profit of some billionaires. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And welcome back to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Last Hours of Humanity, Warming the World to Extinction, a book about extinction. The climate scientists' warnings have come true. There is more carbon in our atmosphere trapping heat and moisture than ever before in the 165,000-year history of the human race. We are on the verge of the first ice-free summer in the Arctic in three million years, 
And back then, the Earth was a very different place from the one currently cradling us. The consequences of a warming planet are appearing much faster than had been projected by climate scientists of just a decade ago. The most dire warnings, rising oceans, freak storms, and agricultural collapse, they're all taking place right now. And it's going to get worse. But now other voices have entered the fray. Those of geologists who study the longer-term implications and histories of a planet undergoing rapid global warming. Specifically, they are focused on extinctions. The climate scientist Professor Paul Wignall of the University of Leeds and an expert on mass extinctions told me that the Permian was the greatest crisis that life on Earth has ever suffered. Only in the past two decades has the cause of the Permian extinction been understood. It was speculated that an asteroid impact may have been the trigger, but more recent research by Professor Wignall, geologists, and other scientists around the world have revealed the true trigger came from deep within the Earth. The permanent mass extinction was initiated by a colossal flow of lava in an area of what is now Siberia. That was the trigger, but not the killer. The killer was under the water and under the ice, where trillions of tons of greenhouse gases, largely derived from carbon and frozen in the form of crystalline methane, lay in wait. Thus, global warming is the force behind the death of nearly everything on the planet during the Permian mass extinction. That point is well illustrated. You can again see the spikes of mass extinctions measured by the increase in global temperatures, with the largest spike representing the Permian mass extinction. Wignall told me, there have been a lot of disasters and crises in the geological past. It's interesting to study them because they may have a comparison to today. He added, I think it is certainly extremely significant that a lot of the main crises of the past are associated with global warming, with obvious implications for the present day. The sixth mass extinction may even rival the speed and intensity of the Great Permian mass extinction, but the sixth is not represented on either of the two previous charts. That's because it's the one happening today, right now, all around us. And then we go on to document how the burning of fossil fuels is throwing an amount of carbon into the atmosphere, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, that's relatively similar to what happened with that giant volcanic eruption in Siberia 250 million years ago with the Permian mass extinction, and how it could be leading to a major extinction event. The book is The Last Hours of Humanity, Warming the World to Extinction. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeff, thanks for listening to X-Ray FM. What's up? Hey, good morning, Tom. Happy holidays to you and everyone with the show. And please give yourselves a pat on the back for all the lessons on democracy you give us every day. It's very appreciated. So thank, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Happy holidays to you, too. What's up? Thank you, Tom. Having said that, I would like to respectfully disagree with you on whether the House should send articles of impeachment to the Senate. Okay. Yeah, Will Bunch wrote an excellent piece for the Philadelphia Inquirer titled Trump's Senate trial is rigged, but a Watergate hero has an idea for saving impeachment. Right. John Dean was the first person who came out. This was almost two weeks ago and said that Nancy Pelosi should pass the articles of impeachment in the House and just hold them. And that's the Watergate hero Mr. Bunch is referring to. And he and he also wrote, quote, McConnell's abandonment of the fundamental notion of the Senate as a check on monarchical power has put a hard stamp on this betrayal as we watch 243 years of democratic tradition plunge over the guardrails, unquote. And Tom, Mr. Bunch wrote that before Moscow Mitch publicly announced his intention to clue with Trump on fixing his own trial. Furthermore, Elizabeth Drew, Ralph Nader, Lawrence Tribe, and others have been critical of having such narrow articles of impeachment. And their criticism is both from a historical point of view... Yeah, you have been too. Yes, you have. And it's from both a historical precedent point of view and a strategic point of view. So if we leave the approved articles in the House, Tom, we can continue to build on them and add to them rather than giving McConnell and Trump the satisfaction of making a mockery of this last check on presidential abuse of power. Shouldn't our main focus be on continuing to expose what a lawless fraud and criminal grifter this guy is rather than letting a sham trial go forth so he can go around proclaiming his exoneration? I think you can do both. And in fact, Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler have both said that they intend to continue doing both, as have the heads of several other committees. I mean, I believe there's five committees that have been designated as the impeachment committees. They are continuing their investigations. Will we be giving away the narrative? 
but no. when the house be given away the narrative to, to do that don't no. you think no no yeah. if you are prosecuting a criminal for say bank robbery and you discover that while he was robbing the bank he's the guy who pulled the trigger and killed the guard then you also add murder to those charges. You can add murder to those charges a year down the road, five years down the road, next week, or while he's in court. The investigations of Trump are going to continue. With regard to holding the impeachment in the House and not sending it to the Senate, you know, I've heard the arguments for that, and I think that they're fairly strong. You know, it is one way to confront the corruption of the Senate by Mitch McConnell, but I'm quite sure that Nancy Pelosi will it. not do that and that Chuck Schumer I, I, I will not would, do yeah. that. And I, would, I wouldn't disagree with that. But, you know, and also to let it hang over the head of this guy, because, yeah. you know, he's he's petrified of it. Look at his letter, you know. So I really don't see why we want to gift wrap him an exoneration just in time for the election season. Yeah, he's, uh, that's, he's that's stewing in it. I mean, I got this email from him. Fred, by proceeding with an invalid impeachment, Democrats are violating their oaths of office, breaking their allegiance to the Constitution, and declaring open war on American democracy. There's been absolutely no dis due process. In fact, more process was afforded to those accused in the Salem witch trials. This is a disgrace. I have been misquoted, mischaracterized, and fraudulently misrepresented during this impeachment scam. And then he says, this entire scam has never been about me, though. The truth is the Democrats are unwilling to accept that you won and that you now hold the power. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy stuff. Jeff, thanks for the call. We'll be right back. Hey, we have a new video over at TomHartman.com, and it covers why Donald Trump should be impeached for denying climate change, you know, which sounds on the surface like, oh, another complaint about what Trump has been up to. And certainly there's a long list of them. But this is the only thing, to the best of my knowledge, that Donald Trump has been doing. Well, I suppose you could say, you know, some of his foreign policy stuff that could lead to nuclear war and thus nuclear winter, which could wipe out the human race, too. But, but this actually is happening right now. Americans are dying every year because of climate change. And the number of Americans who die every year is going up, up, up. And this is a threat to human civilization and certainly to democracies around the world, I think is denial of climate change pulling us out of the Paris Agreement should be included in the Articles of Impeachment. If you think so, too, check it out. It's over at TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman here with you as we uh, head toward the end of the day. Nate made a point to me a little bit earlier, apropos our, some of our conversations on race, that you know I was saying PTSD and P is post, and it's an ongoing trauma for people of color in this country. So probably a more accurate characterization would be TSD, traumatic stress disorder or syndrome or something like that. And I think you said it was Ward Churchill yeah. who first pointed that out. Thank you, Nate. Steve in Atlanta, speaking of which, says you wanted to talk about race. Steve, what's on your mind? Man, I love you because you are, you speak up for democracy. It's a wonder you haven't been killed and I appreciate your courage. Yeah. Now, what I was going to say seriously is that Trump, when he said that he called those players because just because they took a knee and protested because of injustices in the NFL, he called them a son of a bitch. Yeah. Just let that resonate with you, America. And so we as black men took that, you know, personally, even just for that and that alone, one could not vote for him, and and I cannot understand how, why a few of these black people are standing around as just showcasing with him. But I just think that was the worst thing for my well, a lot of things from my perspective uh, that he had done. Now, last thing, quite quickly, is that I was talking to a, a friend of mine, and by the way, we do talk about post-traumatic slave syndrome and in mm -hmm. our groups, and I can talk about slave uh, racism all day. But I want to, he calls himself, I'm a football player and I know street life too and academics. But the point is he come across like he's so tough and all of this, but he's just really a weak, a little weakling that one would want to just be in the ring with him for a minute because if he's not guilty, he don't want, he don't want to answer no questions. Don't let nobody come and testify. I mean, all of those are just, just weakling, but I want to say, pussy stuff, but you know what I mean. 
it's just really crazy you yeah. know, for him. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather we didn't he use just, that. He's not really, it's not as tough as he tried to be. Yeah, you know? I, I get it, Steve. And I, I'd rather we didn't use that word on the air. I don't think we need to bleep it, but, you know, please, let's keep it family friendly here. But I think you're right. And I think that a lot of Trump's bullying and blustering right now is coming out of a fundamental weakness and a fundamental insecurity. And every single time that the Republicans, like Mitch McConnell, say they don't want witnesses, the Democrats need to be saying, what are you trying to hide? What's what are you trying to cover up? Steve, thanks for the call. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I like that uh, PTS, you know, changing, changing stress to slavery syndrome. Fascinating. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So please, get out there, get active, tag your hit. See you soon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.